this series is, is our Lent series. It's going to take us from where we've been all the way up to Easter weekend. It's called From Here to There. And it's this, this period of time in the Gospels where Jesus is with the disciples and they begin making their way to Jerusalem for his final trip to Jerusalem. And so what we shared last week and kind of setting the stage for this series and getting our heads around it was just this very simple idea and it's this, that life with God is all about movement. And it seems like it is. And if you've read the gospels, then you know that this is true. On almost every other verse or so, Jesus is heading somewhere, going somewhere, leaving someplace, visiting new people. He's experiencing new things, always moving. And this isn't just the case in the gospels. It's true for our lives, for the lives that came way before us. So it got me wondering, how many times have you moved? I know, for some of you it's a sore subject. Um, how, so add them up. So start, start going back in your head. Don and I have done this. Uh, um, we were texting back and forth about it and thinking about it because um, I, I didn't trust my memory and she didn't even trust her memory. She started listing the places and addresses and things like that. How many times have you moved? How many times have you moved at least... At least two or three times. We'll, we'll, we'll just give it a specific number. At least three times. So you see your hands. You've moved at least three times. How many of you say, I, you know what? I'm adding them up and I'm over six already. I'm over six. So you see your hands. Put them up. Way up. Way up. I mean, you can offer some sympathy to the people as we keep going a bit. Um, we, Don and I, we've moved uh, eight times in our life. Eight times. Which some of you think, wow, that's a lot. But there's some of you in the room that are thinking right now, that's not very many. So how many of you have moved at least 10 times? Let me see your hands. At least 10. Put them up. Come on, wave them. That's right. Testify. Test it. This is church. It's a spiritual thing. So how many of you would say at least a dozen times? Oh, my gosh. Oh, how many? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have a winner. <laughs> well played, Dave Ells. Oh my gosh. Do you just want to come forward for prayer right now? Oh, that's amazing. That's a, anybody over 30? Oh, Joe. How many? Last time you counted, has it been a while? Maybe two, three. You guys, you should probably meet each other before. <laughs> maybe go to lunch and tell some stories. Um, how many states have you lived in? This is, this is just a different kind of moving. How, how, many, how many of you are natives to Colorado and have never lived outside of Colorado? Let me see your hands. Natives to Colorado, never lived outside of Colorado. You've visited other places, right? You've been. <laughs> you know there's other states. How many of you lived in at least five, we'll say five states. How many of you lived in five states? Oh, that's a lot. That's incredible. That's, that's incredible. How many of you, anybody, 10, 10 states? Really, 10 states? Military, military, there you go. There you go, another set of prayers. 10 <laughs> states, anybody over 10? Anybody over 10? Okay, so, I mean, I wish we had like pies or something to give out to you. <laughs> 
these are, this is, this, you know, we're making the point, we're collectively in a communal way understanding that life is always about movement. And whether you're moving, physically moving or packing things up and you know the burden that goes with it, this is true that life is always about movement in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's geographically, sometimes it's spiritually, sometimes it's emotionally. And again, this is not because we're a transient society. This is not new. This has always been the case. God called Abraham and said to Abraham, look, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, but first you're gonna have to what? Move, you gotta move. You're not gonna do it here. We're gonna take you to a brand new place. And this is as ancient as it becomes. This has always been the case. God is about moving. And not only is life with God about moving, but as we see with Abraham and the disciples and me and you, God is always taking us to new places, always new places. Sometimes they're old places, but they're new again. It's like the the old saying, a man never stands in the same river twice. Either the man is different or the river's different or both. God takes us to new places. And most of the new places that God takes us to, we don't even want to go there. Some of them we do, and some of them we go because we're called, and sometimes we go because we want to, and sometimes it's both. We go because we know God is leading us there, but we still don't want to go. God takes us to brand new places. This week and next week, we'll be in one chapter in the Gospel of John that helps us understand this in a deep and thoughtful and powerful way. And this moment in the Gospel of John, Jesus is beginning to make his way toward Jerusalem. This happens in all four of the Gospels near the end of Jesus' ministry, his final from here to there, his final journey into uh, the, the hot spot of Jerusalem that is going to eventually lead to his crucifixion, his death. And so in this chapter, a story begins to unfold and Jesus takes the disciples and some very close friends to a very new place. And I have a feeling that they don't want to go there either. And the first leg of this journey that Jesus takes them on is from life to death. We used the same graphic for a variety of different things last week to help set up the series. But this part of the journey with Jesus is from life to death. Jesus talks about death a fair amount. Uh, He says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross, this instrument of death. He says, here's the deal. If you want to find your life, then you're going to have to, what? A euphemism for death. Many of the parables that Jesus talks about, that he tells a story, death plays a central role to it. So Jesus is no stranger to death, talking about death, putting death in front of us. And I used to think, I used to believe that Jesus does this because he wants us to face our mortality. He wants us to face this this truth, this, this deal that life is temporary. But I think in recent years, God has helped me understand more deeply, more thoughtfully that I've, I've had that wrong. So why, why is Jesus taking his friends and us? Because we read this scripture along with his friends. We, they experienced it, we read it. Why is he taking us on this at least first leg of the journey from, from life to death? Why would he do that? I don't think it's because of mortality. Everyone I know faces their mortality. In one way or another, we face our mortality. It could be an illness or a sickness, a friend that passes, 
a, a story that you read. Some of you are old enough to have gone through losing some of your close friends to normal causes of death. And you begin to look around and think, you know, I mean, I guess my options are either I go now or, or I live longer than most of my friends. Some of you remember in high school or college that you had a friend that passed untimely for some reason or one, another reason. And these are the things that cause us to, to face our mortality. I mean, I don't, make no mistake, we're all in denial about it. I mean, especially if you're in high school, you think you're gonna live forever, that's just the deal. That's okay, you're allowed to do that and everybody in high school should think that. But we all face our mortality in one way or another. So why does Jesus take his friends and us on this path from life to death. If the issue at hand isn't facing mortality, what, what is it? And I believe it's this. The problem at hand, what Jesus is doing, the reason he does this in so many ways, parables, stories, teachings, in this whole chapter, John chapter 11, is because we think that when it comes to life and death, that we already know all we need to know about it. And our understanding of it isn't correct. It isn't right, it's, it's askew. It's, in fact, we don't even know what we don't know about life and death. Because we see it around us, because we read about it, because we hear about it, we think we have all the pieces put together, but we don't. In other words, we have come to all kinds of conclusions about how this works, and those conclusions lead us to value the wrong things, to pursue the wrong objectives, and to walk down paths that we think are God-prescribed, and they're not. They're not at all. This is just the first leg of the journey in John chapter 11. The second leg is not surprisingly from death to life. And Jesus is gonna to communicate to his disciples, his closest friends, the people that he walks with, talks with every day, he's gonna to communicate to them that not only do you have this backwards and wrong and not only do you come to all kinds of conclusions about this that aren't true, you don't have this right either. In fact, you have a whole theology around what it means to move from death to life. They do. It's a part of their belief system. It's a part of their theology as, as Jewish people, uh, at least this part of the Jewish people. And you have this backwards too. And so he's going to slowly but surely, and he has been throughout his ministry, pulling threads away from that theology and undoing it. But you and I, we have to come to this story in John chapter 11 with, with open hands and open hearts if what Jesus has to say is gonna land in our lives. And we want that, don't we? I mean, we, we want what Jesus has to say to kind of reach in and, and rearrange a few things in our hearts and our minds and maybe shift our values a little bit because for some of us, the values that we have about these things, life and death, they don't really find their way into the practical, everyday part of our lives. Now, if you know the story, then you're gonna have to do what I needed to do in thinking and 
prepping for all of our time together this week and next week, you're going to have sort of just suspend all the stuff you know and just go along for the ride and let the story kind of unfold. Don't rush ahead, you know, don't, don't move forward, just, just let the story unfold. And as the story begins to unfold, the very first verse of John chapter 11 is this. A man named who? A man named Lazarus was what? Now I've already got questions. I've got questions and the text doesn't answer all of them. But we're starting here. And my questions are simple ones. I want to know some things like, well, what kind of sick? How sick is he? I mean, is he like miss a few days of work kind of sick? Or is he like hospital sick? How sick is Lazarus? Now, I know some of you are thinking, does he not know where the chapter goes? I do, I do, but you do too, and don't go there. Just leave it alone. Just stay with the very beginning of the story, and John unfolds this story with this. A man named Lazarus was sick, and I want to know, how sick was he? This is the question we've been asking in dozens of ways for the last three years, right? How sick? How sick is he? How sick, how sick is she? Do you, do you remember the first person that, I'm not even gonna say the C word, I've committed to not saying it. Do you remember the first person that got tested positive and what you thought about them? I mean, it's a new kind of leprosy three years ago, wasn't it? How sick? How sick are they? And what does it mean? What's it gonna lead to? What's the impact? What kind of call did you get? What kind of test results told you? How sick? And what does this mean for my life? What does it mean for the future? What does it mean for how I feel? And throw out contagious and all those other factors. This is not enough information for me. And it probably isn't for you either. And so John just lays it out. Lazarus, he was sick. You've got questions, so do I. So John gives us a little more context, and he says this. He lived in Bethany. Bethany was a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Ah, now we know something about the family. These are friends of Jesus. They, they weren't casual acquaintances of Jesus. They were close friends. And the Gospels tell us some stories about Mary and Martha. Now, Lazarus is only mentioned, shockingly, surprisingly, only mentioned by name in the Gospel of John. That's it. No other Gospel has his name. He's, uh, the name Lazarus is in another parable, unrelated maybe, some think not. But Mary and Martha, we know something about them and they're disciples of Jesus. In fact, they were probably a part of the group of women that helped finance the disciples and their ministry and their efforts. Because you know some of the disciples had jobs before Jesus said, come follow me, right? You remember some of their jobs? What were they? Do you remember? Fishermen. Another one was a tax collector, the two most well-known. They all had jobs, but when they're following Jesus, they can't work. So, I, I mean, how does, that, how does that go down? I mean, how are they eating? How are they living? Well, most all historians believe that it were people like Mary and Mary and this Mary and this Martha who through their efforts, financially supported and actually made it possible for the disciples to do their thing. Financially, that's how it all started. 
because of the efforts and the goodwill and the generosity of women. Mary and Martha, they're dear to them. And so this is not just a casual group of friends of Jesus's. These are people that knew him well, probably deeply connected to the lives of the disciples. John gives us a little more context in case you don't remember who Mary and Martha is. He says this, this is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair, her brother Lazarus. He was the one who was sick. This incident John is going to get into in the very next chapter, and we'll get into it on, on Palm Sunday. And so he says, the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, let's say it together. Are you ready? In the red, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Why did they do that? Why did they send a message to Jesus? Well, you know why. They're aware. They know about the ministry of Jesus. They know that Jesus encountered many people who were sick and ailing in many different ways. And when they left Jesus' touch or his presence, that they were no longer sick, that they were healed, and that they were made well. This is uh, the closest thing in Scripture to our modern-day prayer chain or our prayer group at church. We get a call, we get an email, we get a text. Hey, so-and-so, this is what's going on. This is the deal. Would you begin to pray? And the hope, the hope against hope is that, I mean, I, if we get one person praying, that's good, but two's better than one, right? I mean, it's double. So let's see if we can get, I don't know, a few dozen people praying, especially the holy people like at Castle Oaks. We'll get them praying, and God, we know that they're way up the list. God listens to them, and it gets their attention. And so you, you, you laugh, I know. But I, I don't know why you laughed at being holy, but um, this, is, this is the desire. This is the, this is the same thing. It hasn't changed at all. Mary and Martha knew. Look, I, I, I know, I know that Jesus hasn't healed everybody. I know that. But he's healed some. And if he's healed some, I mean, we're, we're tight with Jesus. We have an end. So let's ask him for help. And you and I, we do the same thing, don't we? And we have an end too, don't we? I mean, you, you believe you have an end. I do. I certainly do. And not because I'm a pastor or work at a church. I, I have an end because I know God and God loves me. And I love God too, and, and I'm not on the fringes. I'm not trying to make some judgment day deal with God. We walk together. And so if I ask, my impression is, is that God will answer. And you can hear, if you listen closely, and you have a discerning heart, you can hear in this request, in this statement, I'm glad that this was included in the, in the text of John 11. You can hear, and we don't want to be suspicious of Mary and Martha, but you can hear a little, uh, uh, we'll just go a little further than we should and call it maybe entitlement. I'm not calling names, I'm just saying just see it this way for a moment. I don't know if that's the case. Don't run ahead. I know you're thinking about stuff you've read later in the chapter. Don't do that. I think you can hear a little bit of entitlement. 
Why? Well, they know. Some people he's healed. So why wouldn't he heal his friend? It's kind of when you're at work and uh, you're either at the water cooler or you're in the lunch area or you're headed to your car and fellow employee says, man, can, can you believe it? I mean, I know times are tight, but it's so generous that they gave us some bonuses. And you don't remember getting a bonus? Has that ever happened to you? And you say, yeah, I know, right? You don't want to know. You don't want them to know that you didn't get a bonus. And, you know, you're thinking, you know, maybe mine just didn't show up yet. Maybe they didn't call me in the office yet. And so a week goes by, nothing. And then you start to think, what do you think? Where is my... Now, a week before that, you didn't have any expectation at all. But because somebody said something to you. Now, me and my brothers did this at Christmas. We did this at Christmas in regards to grandma. You know, we would open all our gifts and the envelopes with the money. And I would invariably, I had the idea, I'm the middle child, so I'm a little devious. I had the idea to say to my older brother, can you believe grandma gave us $100 this year? That's crazy. (laughs) And she had not. She gave us the same 20 she gave us year after year after year. But he said, I know, right? (laughs) And so I knew. I had him. I had him. Ruined his day, which was my goal. Mission accomplished, right? And so when the two sisters send this message to Jesus, they're saying, look, we, we know you're aware, you know all things, but just in case you were a little busy and it fell down your list of priorities, we just want you to know your, your dear friend is very sick. Now, hear me loud and clear. There's a little bit of entitlement. That's not the problem. That's just a little symptom of the deal. Their little entitlement is normal, and we feel entitled a thousand ways every day. That's not the issue. The issue is this. We misunderstand the very nature of life and death. That's the issue. And Jesus, on this little journey, this journey from life to death and from death to life, he's going to do all he can do to begin to rewire our hearts and our understanding of how this all works. And so, John continues and he says this. When Jesus received the message, he said this. This illness is not meant to end in death. It is going to bring glory to God for it will show the glory of the Son of God. And this is so important. Depending on the translation you read, you might even read something that sounds like there is a a causational relationship between Lazarus getting sick and the glory of God being shown. But that would be a complete misunderstanding of the text. And so if this verse makes you feel a little bit stuck about why in the world would Lazarus be sick, it, if you were mistakenly tempted to believe that Lazarus got sick because God wanted to show his glory, then you would misunderstand the nature of sickness and sin and death and disease. That's not how God works. And so I use the J.B. Phillips translation, which is very clear. It's not, to meant, it's not meant to end in death. That's a thought. Here's another thought, unrelated. Correlational, sure. It's going to bring God glory. It just will. And that's the only way that they're connected. And then John gives us this next. And I'm so glad this is there. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, say it with me. 
He stayed where he was. He didn't go. He waited. This is a a very uh, difficult verse to come to terms with. I know, I know you're thinking about the end of the chapter. Don't do that. You, You keep doing that. I don't know why you're doing that. Stop it. Just stop it. Even though he loved them deeply, he stayed where he was. He did not move. And so I know that many of us have been in circumstances or or situations or any number of issues have arisen in our life and, and our perspective is this, Lord, if you love me, then you would. And John gives us this one verse simply, profoundly, pointedly, and so difficult to come to terms with. That God's love does not equal him showing up the way we feel like he should show up. He loved them deeply and he stayed put. And then after two days, Jesus says this to his friends. Finally, he said to his disciples, say it with me, I'll say it together. Let's go back to, I don't know if you know much about geography in, in the first century. Here's a map of Palestine uh, in the time of Jesus. And you can see uh, up in the, the top of the north, you see Galilee. And then a little further down the middle, you see Samaria. This is the geography of Jesus. This is the, the land that he lived in and the land that he walked in. You can even see a bit of the scale, that little uh, span there underneath the little title of the map is, is, is 20 miles. And so you, you could take this overlay of, of the Holy Land all the way from uh, the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, or on this map is called the Salt Sea, and you could overlay it on the Front Range, and you would have somewhere between a little south of Boulder to a little north of Colorado Springs, and about as wide as the Front Range is. That, that's, that's the scale that we're looking at. But this is the geography of Jesus. And so you see some incredible places like Cana, where his first miracle was, up near Galilee. You see Nazareth, where he grew up. You see Bethlehem down here to the south, where he was born, and all kinds of places in between that are mentioned in the Gospels. And if you read the Gospels and you have a map that's laying there handy, you could, you could track Jesus' movement, and even more you will be convinced that life with God is all about movement. It's all about movement, and he's always moving from place to place. Earlier in the Gospels, he's making trips down to Jerusalem. He's going to most of the holy festivals and holy feasts, and eventually near the middle to the, closer to the end of his ministry, him and the disciples, they move all the way to the north, and they hang up here, and they don't go near Jerusalem because when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the religious leaders feel threatened. He's saying things they don't understand. They disagree with his theology, his perspective, his understanding of who God is and how it works. And so they stay up here and then Jesus eventually says, he begins to make one final journey and it begins in Luke chapter nine. He says, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, in fact, Luke says it this way. He resolutely set his sights on Jerusalem. He began to make his trip. Jesus is up north. The disciples know it's pretty hot down there. And Jesus says, very simply, let's go back to Judea. And they say this, 
but his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Okay, so it wasn't a few days ago. If you know the timeline of the Gospels, it was more like a few months ago. But they want it to feel a little worse than it actually is. And there's a reason why they want to feel this way. There's a reason why. And then they say simply to him, are what? Are you going? Why do they say that? We're not going. They don't want to go. The jury's out on whether we're going. Are you going? You do this with your family. You know, they're going someplace you don't want to go. And you say, I don't know, is that what you're doing? Is that where you're headed? Because I'm not going. I'm staying put. In this moment, the disciples are saying, look, I mean, if you, want, if you need to go, that's fine with us. We'll hang here. We'll catch you on the flip side. But you, uh, I mean, you know, tell Lazarus, hey, hope everything's all good. Take care of business. But we're staying away from Judea. We don't want any part of what's happening there. And you, you can see, you can feel this context of, of life and death, right? There's a story being played out here. And it's being played out with all the disciples, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and everyone that's connected. Life and death. And so, stoning, dying. Are you going there again? Then Jesus gets metaphorical. And we'll go quick through these two because there's a bit more I want you to catch before we take communion together today. Jesus says, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. Not really true, but you know, ebbing and flowing. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have what? The light of this world. Do you remember what Jesus called himself? You remember what John called him? The light of the world. And then he goes on to say this, but at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. In other words, Jesus is saying this, there's some things that you don't understand about life and death. When I'm here, I'm going to say it, I'm going to explain it, I'm going to tell a parable about it, I'm going to say it plainly, and I want you to grasp it because there'll be a time when I will be absent, and if you don't have it inside of you, built into the way you see the world, and the way you see life, and the way you see death, then you will have no light because this perspective, this understanding is critical. And Jesus, I think, after speaking this sort of metaphorical language, the disciples started to look kind of vacant in their eyes, like, you know, you lost us. We, we don't know what you're talking about. So Jesus then just simply says, so our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. What the disciples say next, I think, is hilarious. Here's what they say. The disciples said, well, hey, if he's sleeping, he will get better. He'll get better soon. And again, we see this evidence that the disciples know that Jesus is thinking about going to Judea and they are not going to go. They're absolutely, you know, he, it's all good. Lazarus is fine if he's asleep. And so this moment in time, you have to begin to ask this question, why did Jesus say it this way? We have all kinds of euphemisms for death, don't we? We have phrases that we say when we don't want to say that somebody is dead. We say things like, they have passed away. They are no longer with us. These are the respectful ones. We have a whole other pile of them that are not respectful or they're more funny or lighthearted that we say, we'll leave those for another message. 
Why would Jesus use a euphemism? We use euphemisms because we don't want to say dead. It just sounds harsh to us. It sounds, we just don't want to talk about it. Polite people don't discuss these things. We have all kinds of reasons why we would use a euphemism. But that cannot be the reason why Jesus uses a euphemism about Lazarus falling asleep. Why would he say that? This truth in the words of Jesus gives us a glimpse of what we miss when it comes to life and death and death and life. They misunderstand it completely and again, they don't want to go anywhere near Judea and so Jesus sees their misconception and just simply says, look, Lazarus is dead. I just got to tell you, I guess, you guys are posts, dumb as a post. So Lazarus is dead. And then he says this, okay, don't miss it. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For your sakes. I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will what? What does that mean? What does that mean? Really believe? There's a gap. There's a gap between what we say we believe and what we, what? What we really believe. And that gap, whenever Jesus teaches, he's forever trying to shrink that gap. And we don't even know that gap is there until something happens, right? I mean, we all think, absolutely, we all think that our hope is in Jesus, our whole, only hope is in Jesus until our vacation is canceled. And then we think, well, I mean, I guess some of my hope was there. All of us believe that we should be forgiving people until we have to forgive somebody. And then we think, well, that, you know, God would make an exception for what happened to me. But what does Jesus mean when he says, I, I, I'm glad that we get to go now. You get to see what you get to see because then you will really believe. This is the essence of John chapter 11, the whole chapter. And it is the consummation really of the entire gospel. And this truth about life and death, even those of us who have a firm belief in heaven, we don't get it. Even those of us who believe in a bodily resurrection, we, we don't get it. Even those of us who have grown up in the church and are familiar with every word in John chapter 11, often have missed it. And it shows up because we have a gap between what we believe and what we really believe and how we live and our values and how we treat other people and how we move about the structure of our day. And then, then the disciples realizing that Jesus is just going to go and, you know, if we don't go, I guess we aren't his disciples. I mean, that's what it meant. Proximity meant Jesus said when he called him, he said, follow me. So if Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, they go, you know what? We're done with the following bit. You know, we'll catch up with you later. That would literally mean that they weren't disciples anymore. So are we going or are we not going? What are we doing? Because Jesus, it looks like he's pointed toward Judea. Then Thomas says this. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too. And what? Say it with me. And die with Jesus. Yeah. Now, uh, this, is, this verse is a bit of a personality test, okay? So there's no tone in scripture. We have no idea how this was spoken 
and what was said. And so you could hear it one of two ways. Uh, well, probably a bunch more, but to, for today, it's one of two ways. Um, you could hear it as Thomas, the doubter, has this moment of faith and moment of clarity, and he just says with boldness, squares his shoulders toward Judea, and he says, he's going to Judea, we're going to, let's go, we'll die with him. You know, a little brave heart moment, right? It could be that. Or you might hear it the way I heard it when I read it, as Thomas the sarcastic. Well, we might as well go. We were going to die with him anyway. And when he said that, it's a little different than Braveheart, right? I mean, he's got this sort of tongue-in-cheek and, you know, here we go. This is what's happening next. We've been doing this for three years. What do you expect? And in this moment, Thomas, the disciples, and down in Bethany, Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus, they are all having to face the very thing that we all have to face. And this journey that they're on is from life to death. This is why we have the communion elements on the table today. This is why this message fits with us experiencing communion. The path that they're walking toward Judea is toward death. The path that Lazarus is on is toward death. The path that Mary and Martha are having to deal with in the face is wondering, we sent word and Jesus was delayed. Why is he not here? Why has God not shown up? This is the essence of the meal that Jesus had with his friends the night before he was killed. And so in just a moment, we'll be reminded that on the night before he was killed, before he was betrayed, that Jesus sat down at the Passover meal. And in that meal, he held up the bread of Passover and he tore it and he ripped it and he passed it to his friends and he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. And then he held up a cup of Passover and it contained the fruit of the vine and he held it in front of his friends and he said, this cup represents a new covenant is my blood. Take from it, all of you, drink it. And together they experience this meal together. When Paul describes the beauty, the simplicity of this meal, he says that in doing so, we remember the death and the burial and the resurrection every time. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And so we Remember the journey that Jesus has us on from life to death and then from death to life. So in just a moment, there'll be some people in the room all up here at the front. You can come to them. They'll say a, a similar phrase to you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, knitted in our hearts, reminding us the beauty of the death and the burial and the resurrection. You're welcome to take communion in front of them right there or return to your seat and take it with some reflection and some thought. Our hope and our prayer as we either wait in line together or wait in our seats for there to be more room in the aisles, that the, the milling about will remind you of the beauty of the body of Christ 
Each of us are a part of it. And so, Lord, in this place, we come to you with open hearts. We pray that our surrender to you in this moment would be with open hands, simply saying to you these things. Lord, we do not know what Jesus is trying to teach us in John chapter 11, but we have a sense that it has, in fact, the very essence of life and death. And we pray that you would move us to new places the same way that the disciples were moved geographically to the region of Judea, but emotionally and spiritually to a place of understanding where their preconceived ideas of death and burial and resurrection were upended by what they witnessed. And so regardless of whatever tone Thomas had in his statement, we say it with sincerity today. Lord, we pray this simple prayer. Wherever you're going, we want to go too, and we'll go and die with you as well. And we recognize that we don't even fully understand the gravity of that prayer. But we pray that you would give us the courage to say it. So wherever you're leading us, the new places that each of us are moving to, we experience this path, this journey of life to death and death to life. And so in this place, in this moment, the many that are dispersed in their homes, as we share communion together, Lord, would you meet us in the beauty of the simple meal as we remember the death and the burial and the resurrection. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.